You are listening to Humanities Engaged, where we take a closer look at the value of a liberal arts education. I'm Steve McFarlane, and I teach philosophy in the Division of Humanities at the University of Minnesota Morris. I'm joined by UMM student and brains of the operation, Adam Kretz. Say hi, Adam. Hey there, everybody. Thank you for listening. You'll hear me chime in occasionally during the interview with a couple questions, and I'll join Steve afterwards to discuss what we learned. We are coming to you from the University of Minnesota Morris, made possible with funding from the Mellon Foundation. Please join us as we interview UMM faculty to learn how they teach and why they teach. Today's guest is Dr. Sherry Breen. Dr. Breen is a member of the Political Science Department in the, in the Division of Social Sciences. She's also the faculty coordinator for the Study Abroad program and an advisor to the Muslim Student Association. Dr. Breen received her PhD from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities and she's a recipient of the Alumni Association Teaching Award and the Horace T. Morris Minnesota Alumni Association Award. This career was a surprise. I had a previous career in journalism. I was a newspaper editor for many years, but I had also, uh, I was taking evening classes at the University of Minnesota and was so in love with political theory and what I was learning that I did not want to leave it. And so I was spending my days writing editorials and newspaper articles about political deliberation, political decision making. And then in my classes, figuring out the theoretical foundations that were underneath those policy decisions. And so when I got my bachelor's degree and I had taken a break from college and so I was getting my bachelor's degree when I was a professional, working professional. And when that ended, I was sitting at the kitchen table with my father who was living with us. I had two kids in middle school and my father was living with us and he said, if you could do anything you wanted, what would you want to do? And I said, I would go to graduate school and study political theory. But, hey, that isn't going to happen. <laughs> and he said, let's figure out a way to make it happen. And so my father, uh, when I was in my late 30s, supported me so I could go to graduate school. And that's how I went into political theory. And it's exactly what I wanted to do and what I've wanted to do ever since. So then... So then you were taking classes that matched with your um, interest in journalism. How did you get onto those classes? Did you have an inkling that those would be classes you, you'd find interesting? Or, or did, was it the other way around? You just took a class not knowing? No. It was no. Just, mm-hmm. When I was originally in, at, in my undergraduate career, when I was originally in college mm-hmm. as a, an 18-year-old, actually a 17-year-old, I was obsessed with... Um, languages and with science but I am of an age when the time when I was in college initially was a radicalization of politics this was during the time of great anti-war protests and and the the rise of the second wave of feminism and I became quite radicalized politically for my age and I was disenchanted with the educational 
structure that I was in, to say the least. So I went off and did other things and ended up then, because I always loved to write, I ended up as a newspaper editor. Mm -hmm. At that point, I decided that politics was not only interesting, but absolutely essential because I saw the ways in which people believed about human nature and how we relate to each other and what it means to be a political actor and a political subject and how we thought about who should rule as being the key questions in life. And so I deliberately chose political theory courses and the other courses I had to take to to finish my degree. So I didn't have very many things that I had to take yet, but that's why I went back to school and got my degree in those courses. And they completely fulfilled everything I wanted. I've always seen, I shouldn't say I've always seen, I came to believe that political theory, which you as a philosopher know, there's political theory and political philosophy have a lot in common. And political theory is a kind of gray zone sometimes within political science. Um, I don't, it, I don't in political theory need not reject empirical work. I do empirical work in my research, but it's much more about the philosophical underlying questions. And so those questions drove me and I saw them as not by any means auxiliary, but as at the core foundation of how we think about the world. And so that's what drove me into political theory. I see it as the most important and essential aspect of political discussion. So, so since that, that drove you into learning, um, you know, just, just you had that interest. Um, could you, is there an example that surfaces for you as you're in your time being an editor, you know, learning about the political ongoings that uh, maybe connects to the political theory at all? Yeah. Yeah. I, for example, I remember a time when I was covering, uh, two examples actually, I remember a time when I was covering a labor strike, and this is before I was an editor, I was a reporter at this time, but I was covering a labor strike, and at the same time was studying in my college persona, was studying um, political ideologies including socialism and liberalism. And so I would, I would talk to the sources surrounding this labor strike, both the union leaders, the business executives, and they would be airing arguments with no clear recognition of how they fit into the broader philosophical arguments. And then I would go to my class and read the primary sources, and there they were. So it the connection, on the one hand, the connection between what was going on in everyday political life and what I was studying in the primary sources was striking. On the other hand, the lack of connection by those involved, the lack of recognition of the body of work they were being a part of and how what they did both reflected reflected and arose from the work of philosophy and political theory that people had been doing for centuries was really striking to me. And so as I studied things, I continually found myself wanting to go back and rewrite everything I had written on that topic for the last five years because I felt like what I had done was inadequate because I hadn't understood 
in any deep way until now, the arguments and the beliefs and the assumptions that were underneath it. So that that was really striking to me. That made a huge impression on me as a as a professional learning after the fact what the underlying arguments were. Hmm. Yeah, I often tell my students that, you know, some people don't want to study philosophy or maybe politics, but everybody has a theory. It's just that some people don't pursue, want to pursue it that that, that much or rethink it that much. Yeah. Um, so what are some topics that interest you these days? What are some things you're looking at or reading about yeah. or working on? There are a couple of topics that are constant themes in my work, both in, in my teaching and in especially in my research. I have all my life been attentive to and drawn to agriculture and how we think about pastoralism and our relationship to the land. I use the word pastoralism because agriculture on its own has certain connotations. There are assumptions that it means Number one, mechanized agriculture or agribusiness. And also that it's focused on either livestock rearing or crop raising. And pastoralism includes a broader arena of a history of relationships to the land that may be migratory, that may be nomadic, which agriculture alone doesn't always bring in. So I have, when I was uh, young, I, I worked in agriculture. I, you know, I, worked, I, worked, I worked as a hired hand. I worked as a farm manager in some ways. I've not made my living through agriculture other than that, but I, have, I raised my kids on a farm. My dad lived with us on a farm. It was a self-sufficiency kind of farm, self-sustaining farm, not a, a business that I ran. But I have my environmental views, my views about how we think about the land and how we relate to the land has always been tempered by the question of of agriculture. And here's why. Agriculture and farming are at their core a unit of control, a function of control, a dynamic of control. For example, a farmer decides what will live and what will die, and at what time. That is part of how you think about the raising of crops and the raising of livestock. It's inescapably part of it. So one of the things that comes out of that for me as a political theorist is that my work and my teaching in in environmental studies and in a good chunk of political theory is how we think about the concepts of property and ownership. So if I were to describe myself as a political theorist, what is my area? I am an environmental political theorist. It's a very small subcategory, but it's actually growing quite a bit. There's a, a group of us who meet at conferences and work together, but it's a way of thinking about the political aspects, meaning talking about power and liberty and justice and democratic deliberation in our relationship with our environment. 
And so property then and ownership, the concepts of property, the theories of property, you know, going back to Rousseau and Marx and John Locke are, are things that I think about a great deal. The other area that drives my teaching and my research, but especially my teaching, is thinking about how we ask these deeply conceptual questions from not just Western points of view. So for example, I teach Islamic political thought. I bring in Confucian political thought into my introductory course and um, used to have a big chunk of it in one of my upper division courses. I bring in non-Western and indigenous thinking into the political theory courses quite a bit. That's one of the reasons why in the study abroad leadership, I've taken most of the study abroad work I've done has been in the Middle East and North Africa. Cuba is actually the exception. And that's just recently the, 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 the Cuba, Cuba just, yeah. trip. And Cuba, just as a brief explanation, as the study abroad coordinator, I set up the Cuba program as a way to get a Cuba program here for Morris, to get us in there. And then from now on, after Ben Narvaez and I led the first version of it, the first iteration of it, it will now rotate across the faculty and across the discipline. So I did not set it up as my course by any means. So, for example, next year, Arna Kildegard and Wendy Roberts are going to lead a Cuba program and from Spanish and from economics. And after that, it'll be two other people. So that was my effort was to get it going. But my main area of study abroad has been in the um, Middle East and North Africa. Yeah, well, yeah, I'd love to un unpack a, a few of the th things that you mentioned there. And because I, I took a political philosophy class this, this uh, past fall, and, and I found it really illuminating for me just to, kind of like you mentioned before, be able to take in some of the, the news items, but actually have an understanding of the larger you know, philosophical debates in which, which they kind of um, are rooted in. And so one, one thing I was just interested in maybe to just to bring, bring out some of the research you're doing in, into a more vivid picture. In my political philosophy class, we talked about, you know, we had, you had John Locke and, and Robert Nozick, and mm -hmm. both of them have, um, you know, these theories about property. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for, for some people, the straightforward view of property might be, oh, if, if you've paid for it, you know, it's, it's yours. You know, what's, what's more complicated than that? So I just thought to help bring out, you know, what's unique perhaps about your view where, where, where does, you know, how do you respond to something like that, I guess? Yeah. That question is at the core of the research project I've been working on for the last couple of years, actually. How we think about ownership and property ties into the example I'm going after, which is the ownership of seeds. So this brings together my interest in farming and agriculture and the idea of property. So let me just give you a nickel version of it, okay? Just try to describe what it's going after. The paper I'm writing right now, that I'm working on right now, is looking at two different perspectives on seeds as property, and I think it illustrates the question you were asking. For a very long time, seeds have been seen as a source of community wealth, and I'm talking here about food and crop seeds, okay? They have been raised and harvested by individuals, certainly, but they've been 
held as a source of community security. And in fact, there have been some clear examples of how seeds are seen as the second most important factor in a community behind children. No matter what else you have, if you do not have children, and if you do not have seeds for the following year, you have nothing. No matter how much food you have to eat now, if you do not have seeds to plant for the next year, you are in dire danger. That understanding of seeds is not, according to Nozick and Locke, by any means. It is quite a contradictory understanding. In fact, it sees the idea of seeds as property, of owning seeds as being either difficult because it's not privately owned or even nonsensical. It makes no sense at all to talk about seeds as, as property. In the past 150 years especially, there's been a growing change. Uh, the dynamics are shifting to a second perspective which sees seeds and the essence of seeds as part of intellectual property and the control of seeds as part of intellectual property rights. And this is at the international level, especially the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, and the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, are deeply enmeshed in this. And that understanding of seeds as private property is deeply influenced by a Lockean approach. Nozick is right in there, too, where as long as, as Nozick argued, as long as the transfer of ownership is fair and without fraud, it does not matter how much one has over another. Inequality is not the issue. That dynamic has deep implications for what's happening for peasant populations and indigenous populations and home gardeners in the world. The shift of seeds from a source of community wealth to privatized objects of ownership that are controlled by international law in particular ways has been both fascinating but far too little attended to. And so my research has been to watch both what's happening at the local level in terms of seed sovereignty movements and peasant movements, but also at the international level in terms of how the legislation and the um, international agreements are being created and interpreted and executed uh, through the FAO and WIPO in particular. It's been, to me, absolutely fascinating how deeply different these two understandings of seeds are. You can, here is a seed, but one perspective looks at what that seed is as something that is quite different from what the privatized understanding of seeds as intellectual property looks at as. One way you look at a seed as being, in effect, a living thing that is full of the future in terms of food systems and security. The privatized way of looking at seeds is as genetic containers and that the intellectual property is over not the seed so much as the genetic information that it contains. Those are really different understandings of what it means to be a seed and they have profound implications all through society. So those different understandings of property I think are absolutely crucial and I think we're at a historic turning point in this. I mean, in, in my vision of historic turning points that can last 100 years, you know, 
So I'm not talking about this year or next year, but that's what's driving the research I'm doing right now is these different conceptual understandings of what can be owned, by whom, and what that ownership constitutes. And, and so you take a, and you are you arguing for the community view of the seed and then just, just kind of drawing attention to the implications of having this intellectual version? Is, is that kind of wh- where you're positioned? In the article I just mentioned, I'm more focused on outlining what is going on because at the international level, especially in WIPO, there is deep tension about what is going on and a considerable lack of respect for the more traditional way of viewing seeds. Um, The privatized understanding of property ownership has risen to dominance. So I'm raising some points and clarifying some points in that analysis. That article is part of a larger book project. And in the book project, I'm very much going in a in a further direction. And it is not that I think privatized or intellectual property approaches are inherently illegitimate. I understand why we have ended up where we are. I think there's legitimate arguments for intellectual property. However, I do think that it's gone in some highly untenable directions in terms of seeds as living things, as um, not things that are created and how we've thought about material objects being created or immaterial intellectual property being created. So I have some deep criticisms of where it has gone and especially how some of the approaches in the world, especially at the international level, and that includes the U.S. as a, as a diplomatic force, as a negotiating force, I should say, how they have approached this. I think there's some strong questions of justice that need to be addressed in this. I'm a bit obsessed by this topic. <laughs> so you have a diverse, uh, well, a diverse set of experiences in your background, and you come uh, at some similar questions from different directions. So I wonder how you take this to the classroom, how you uh, having, st- what kind of assignments or how do you structure your classes to, so that you can bring this kind of experience you have and this you know knowledge base that you have and uh, get it across to students? I use a couple of tools that I think are quite effective and I'd like to mention two of them or describe two of them. And they do relate to what I was talking about, though not in the sense of agriculture and seeds. They have nothing to do with that. But how we think about our relationship to the political world and how we connect that to the canon of political theory and the, the, the primary sources and the, the concepts involved in that is traditionally through textual analysis and traditionally through textual analysis of mostly Western political theorists. That has changed. It's not quite as you know, unilateral as it used to be. But one of the things I have used extensively is role-playing simulations. I draw from a particular area of role-playing simulations. There's a, a, a portfolio of them. It's called um, Reacting to the Past. 
it originated at Barnard College by a history professor who was using them in his first year seminars. And they have since expanded dramatically. And others have written these, these simulations. And so there's now a portfolio of, there must be close to 50 of them, either in development or published. And I've used, I think, almost a dozen of them over time. But I, I try some, I pull back. So there's a couple of them that I use. And I'm actually launching one on Monday. I mean, they already have their roles, but we're going to actually start playing it on Monday. And these can last for several weeks. These are not one-day simulations by any means. And here's why I think they're important. The students are given roles, and once the game begins, I'm in the back of the room, quiet. The most I will do is pass notes. And the students run things for a couple of weeks. And let me give you the example of the one I'm starting on Monday. This is in my modern political thought class, which covers the 16th through the 19th centuries. Right. In, in uh, ac- academia, modern doesn't mean new. That's right. That's <laughs> it's right. a certain time right. period, 16, right. That's the modern yeah. era. Yeah. yeah. And the theorists that we're using, the primary sources that we are using for this particular simulation include Marsilius of Padua, Martin Luther, Thomas More, Desiderius Erasmus, and Niccolo Machiavelli. Not in historical order there, as you can tell. And uh, I've pretty much always used those philosophers in that class, some more than others. I mean, Luther, Moore, and Machiavelli are essential. Marsilius of Padua and Erasmus, to some extent. The point is that we spend a couple weeks reading the primary sources and some secondary sources about those, and then this, this simulation, it, it, it's very Western. It's, it's in England. It's a European simulation. And the students are all members of British Parliament from 1529 to 1536. And this is the Henry VIII and the Reformation Parliament. So the question that drives the simulation at its surface is, will Henry VIII be allowed to get a divorce from Catherine of Aragon and Mary Anne Boleyn? But the political and conceptual and philosophical questions that are underneath that are, what is the role of the state? What is the role of the church? Who should rule? What does sovereignty mean? What does representation mean? How much should there be rule by law or rule by the man, in this case being Henry VIII? And so these deeply important historical philosophical questions are at the core of this. And the students then Some of them are members of the House of Lords, and they're secular lords. Some are ecclesiastical lords, including the Archbishop of Canterbury. Some are in the House of Commons and are knights or burgesses from various um, representative areas. And they need to deal with a series of questions that deal with, that address questions of supremacy, who is supreme, questions of what happens to the monasteries, do they become public property or are they private? What happens to the money that's been going to the Catholic Church and to the Pope? Does that stay then within the court? Does that go to fund war? Does that become King Henry VIII's personal purse? All of these questions come up and they write speeches and deliver speeches according to this agenda. So the game both poses these questions based on these primary readings, and, and of course their, their role descriptions are sometimes 10, 11 pages long, 
and they clearly have allegiances to say one person's a a deep Machiavellian thinker and another student is very much a fan of Thomas More and Utopia and another person is a, a, a humanist and the like Erasmus, et cetera, et cetera. And so they are writing speeches and making arguments based on their role descriptions and their outside research, because there's a long list of additional sources there's, they need to consult, and, and having debates about where this political world should go based on this. And again, meanwhile, I'm sitting in the back quiet. So whereas I learned Machiavelli and Thomas More by textual analysis, they're seeing a couple of things that are different. And one is Moore and Machiavelli are not alone. They are in a deep contextual debate. They're not the only voices. And so they're not looking, now we'll look at Machiavelli. Now we'll look at Moore. You know, mm-hmm. the, these are people arguing with each other and being refuted by each other. And they have to play these out in real time on a day-by-day basis. And if they don't do it well, their position's gonna lose. And the end result of the simulation is gonna be quite different because there is no guarantee here whatsoever that King Henry's gonna get his way. Another simulation that I use is the Athenian assembly, which includes the trial of Socrates. And Socrates may or may not survive. That is entirely <laughs> up to the students in the class. And the, you know, the medics, the non-Athenians who are not citizens at the time, may or may not be granted citizenship. It's entirely up to the students. And the studies of these simulations show that retention of the core concepts soars. And that having to implement this stuff on the ground in real time through speeches and research can make a significant difference in how real these arguments are and how well they are retained a year and five years down the road. So that's one teaching tool, one pedagogical approach that I use quite a lot. I I use every spring I do at least one major simulation in class and I do one every other year in the fall in my political ethics class And that one's based on the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. That's a very dark simulation, as you can imagine. But the students, most of them play members of the UN Security Council at the time that the news is coming in about what's going on in Rwanda. And they have to decide what to do. Do we intervene? Do we not intervene? And they represent different countries and have to think about what their country's interests are as well as what the ethical implications are. Yeah, if you, if you, this is a caricature and overly simplistic, but you, you could almost have this image of what we learn in high school is that the founding fathers went into a room and came out with a constitution and it was great. Then they voted on it. But no, they, they had a historical context for what they were thinking. They knew what the prior attempts had been to create Mm -hmm. states and they, what they thought worked, what didn't work. And sometimes they were right. Sometimes they were wrong. And, so, so even if we're not, even if like the average Joe is not aware of these forces, the forces are working and they're doing things and making a difference in all of our lives. Mm-hmm. And so you put the students into the scenarios where their decisions will, will make a difference. Yeah. To, to, to And sometimes those scenarios are really uncomfortable. Yeah. I assign roles that are not easy roles for them. They sometimes are arguing things that they disagree with very strongly. In this broader portfolio, there's also several simulations that deal very explicitly with race and and sexism 
and a whole variety of really difficult topics. I've used some of them in other classes. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious. Is there a, I took a philosophy of law class, and I don't know if you, you've read this, this uh, tale. It's called The Tale of the Pl- Splunkian Explorers. I don't remember yet. No, That's I know okay. there's so many philosophers love these models, but I don't know if I know that one. It is basically you have, you have I think six justices, and they all have to give a you know a ruling on a case. But um, like one of the perspectives that they give is like this political realism um, pers- perspective, and it's it's that you know people aren't like moved by arguments or you know some certain or interpretation of what they think the law is. Like they're just moved by whatever their bias is, and they're going to do what they want to do. And so I was just curious in your example, like because you said somebody has to win at the end, and are the students like given a constraint of? Uh, you know, they have to be like moved by the arguments or is there some element of they're just going to decide based on, you know, their own biases? I was just kind of curious about that aspect of things. Those are questions that are addressed differently in different simulations. So it depends on the simulation. But by and large, there will be some roles in which their view and what they argue will be quite clear from the beginning. And they do not try to hide it. There are other roles that are called indeterminates that have much looser allegiances and philosophical assumptions. Sometimes they care about a particular issue, but on some of the main issues of the simulation, they're open. And those are the people that make or break the game. Because if you want to win with your argument, and by the way, there's some other aspects of this idea of winning that are relevant to how we run these simulations. Not all of them involve winning. Some of them do. This particular one, Henry VIII, does. But if you want to win, if you're in a simulation which winning is a goal, you have to go after those people, the indeterminates, and you need to persuade them that your argument makes the most sense. That sometimes can be done strategically. That sometimes is done um, much more theoretically, but you need to go after them. And so it, it really depends on the roles and the particular game. There, that's a question that um, the, the writers of these simulations argue with each other about all the time. That there's a, every year there's a conference for people who are writing this particular reacting to the past set of simulations, and they get together and help each other and argue about the best way to make these. And they deal with questions such as the implications of having winning as a goal or of how to bring in students who do not normally participate in class about how to make this, uh, these simulations work well for students who are not as good at writing. That's not their skill. And one of the things that uh, I'll just note, one of the things that I see over the years of using these is Students who do not normally get high grades get deeply involved in these games, and attendance, or shall we say absenteeism, nearly disappears. Attendance is very high during these games. People really get into it. Sometimes I have to get them out of the room <laughs> afterward so the next class <laughs> can get That's beautiful. In. That's great. And so you, you mentioned a second tool that you yeah. use? Mm-hmm. The example of that is uh, it's a tool I use and I've used for the last two years now in environmental political theory, which is a 3000 level course that I teach that is an elective for environmental studies and a elective for political science. And it, I work with 
an office on the Twin Cities campus called the Culture Corps Office. And they coordinate with international students on the Twin Cities campus, mostly graduate students. And I will say, for example, all right, I've got 20 students in my class this semester. I want 20 international students from 20 different countries. And these are the kinds of things I'm especially looking for. And they will line me up with 20 graduate students. And then my students throughout the whole semester do a series of projects with those graduate students and on their own. And that involves first being assigned to one of those graduate students. So for example, I've had a, a graduate student from Kazakhstan has been involved twice with me. And the student who's assigned to that graduate student in Kazakhstan will do research on Kazakhstan and do research on who is there, you know, just the, the demographics of the country, the political history of the country, but especially getting into some of the environmental aspects of the country and finding out what the ecological and politically environmental problems and questions are. Then they do a minimum half hour video interview with that student from the Twin Cities. And we work on designing interview questions ahead of time, talk about how to do interviews. I, I pull from my journalism background here. Um, wh what makes a good interview? What kind of questions you ask when you're silent and when you talk? So they do this, this um, half hour interview. Then they do some additional research. They write a series of small reports. And then they finally, toward the end of the semester, do a second interview in which they go much deeper into some of the family history and environmental history of the person they're interviewing. And then they, this all comes together at the end in an oral presentation and a full-fledged paper. And so meanwhile, we're also working on a whole bunch of other things dealing in the, in the curriculum of that class and the content of that class that deal with different ways of thinking about environment and our relation to it politically. So th the end result is that these students have a one-on-one -on -one relationship, often for the first time, with someone from another country. In addition, one other element of it that I did not mention is that each student also is assigned a hypothetical or fictitious person from the same country who is of a very different cultural or demographic background. So for example, one of my students was assigned to an international student from um, China and their hypothetical person was a Uyghur from West China who is Muslim. So they had both the Han student, the Han majority culture student to interview, but they also were doing research on the Uyghur. And so their final paper involves all three of them. They are personally involved in the paper. They're also talking about their own relationship to their home, what they think of as home ecologically, what the hypothetical person would, how that would be for them and the person that they interviewed. So it might be a, a, a different gender, a different age. Um, historically, that can make a big deal of importance, uh, et cetera. So it brings together some very real aspects of that country and how they think about their environment and then comparing it to their own way of thinking about the environment here. Yeah, so, it's, so it's, it has to generate kind of deep thinking and thinking outside the box of what they're used to by design. I hope so. It's challenging, and I've, I, they've been, the feedback has been strong on, on this. So I'm going to do that again next fall. 
Yeah, yeah, do you have a sense that just this um, element of being involved with some, you know, graduate student has some help for um, like the student's learning process? Just, I don't know, somehow that's like motivational or makes it more interesting or something for them? I do. I do think it's more interesting for them. I also think that's that simulations and this um, culture core assignment, they have some things in common. So one of the things is I am making it fun, I think. I mean, they really enjoy these interviews. They're kind of scary to do, but once they do them, they find they're really interesting. And some of them have formed friendships with the people they talk about. As I said, the minimum is a half an hour. Some of the interviews have gone on more than an hour. So there is fun, they're intriguing. But secondly, both of them are putting learning on the ground and in a very active way. So they're, even though they're still in the classroom, these are different forms of experiential learning. That You have to practice what you're learning. You have to actually do things physically, intellectually, that are not normally, or traditionally, I should say, part of the way in which theoretical concepts are thought. I keep saying, you know, political theory is not an ivory tower enterprise. It has deep immediate everyday implications for how we live our lives as political actors and subjects. And I think the simulations and those culture core interviews with the attendant assignments that go with it are a way of putting that into practice in real life. And so so would you separate um would you separate the like intellectual understanding from the practical understanding or do you feel like just doing something practical helps you have a better intellectual understanding. I theoretically reject the sharp division, the bright line between theory and practice. Okay. I don't see it in my own life. In my research, I think I'm doing theory and practice integrally all the time, all together. And I think that division is counterproductive in many ways. I think that's what has fomented this idea that political theory, political philosophy is something that those people in their ivory tower do while the rest of us are actually living. I don't see that division at all. I think they're part and parcel of the same thing. That's why I wanted to do political theory. I've had a very practically oriented life. I've you know, supported my kids. I've, I've traveled. I've done a lot of things in a very practical way. I'm not an ivory tower kind of person, I, it, but I think the concepts, the theoretical understandings underlie everything we do at the same time that we're doing them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about teaching is turning that light on of how we think about the understandings at the same time we are living. Yeah, and so in, in thinking about how, how to get the light to turn on for, for more and more students, one of the things we're asking everybody who, who comes on the, the program here is, is how, you know, what kind of advice would you give either for students in your classes or just college students in general, you know, undergraduate students to get more out of, you know, their educational experience, to have more of those light bulbs moments? Because, you know, one of, one of my senses is that... Um, sometimes you know that that there's this level of like intellectual stimulation and, and, and deep understanding that that's possible in college 
but it seems like you know there's only so many people who get that or maybe it depends on the subject or it depends on the teacher it depends on a lot of things and so do you, do you have any advice for how to foster that or what students could maybe do practically uh, in their college experience? I'm sure this is wholly inadequate, but the first thing that always comes to my mind when I think about broad sense of advice is open yourself up to any adventure that makes itself possible to you. And that includes such things as from the most mundane end, taking classes that you don't think you have any particular affinity for go for it that's what liberal arts education is all about expose yourself to new ideas and go after them to take advantage of the travel that you have access to and that's why study abroad is so important for me thinking about the places you go and the transformations that occur not just because of the course but the people you meet Everywhere I go, I travel for my research quite a bit. I've been all over the world in the last couple of years, multiple times. And I don't think there's anything that gives me more happiness and excitement than getting into conversations with people I know nothing about and learning as much as I can from them. And students do that all the time and study abroad. And even things like in college life, those late night discussions about life. That's part of the college experience too. So just go for it. Open yourself up to all kinds of adventure and new experiences and don't let yourself be blinded. Get those blinders off and think about what else there is possible. Inspiring. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, just one one follow up there. Yeah, what what is what is like a a, a blinder, an example of like a blinder? Because yeah, maybe you could help uh, people recognize it. If um, maybe help me recognize one. To me, one of the blinders I see regularly is, I must have two or three majors, and if this course does not satisfy a requirement, either a gen ed, or a major or minor requirement, it is of no use to me whatsoever. That is missing the point of a liberal arts education. I'm not saying you can't do two majors. Plenty of students do very well, but there has to be some play. You have to be able to play. And play means not simply being instrumental about every single thing that you choose. There has to be an element of, what the heck? This might be really interesting. Let's give it a shot. And there has to be room in your schedule and in your life to try that because later on when you're raising those kids and you're working to support them, you may not have much room for play. Many of us do not. Uh, so I that's one of the examples of blinders that I see. Great, yeah, that's a good point. So when it comes to um, content or substance, in either one of your courses, maybe a theme across courses, is there any big idea that, you know, 20 years from now, maybe they'll remember every little thing they did, but you hope that they remember this thing from taking your classes? I say to my intro class, which is primarily not political science majors, will never take another political science course or another political theory course to be sure, and who are generally just taking it for a gen ed, I say to them, 
one of the frustrating things about a class like this is that I'm not giving you, for the most part, very specific answers. This is not a memorization course in which you have to learn parts and lists. However, the most important thing I want you to get out of this is the question of what are the issues we need to wrestle with? So the idea is not to decide what the answers are, but what are the questions that need to be asked? And I hope you wrestle with these questions for the next 50 years. That's what I'd like them to take away. What is, what is one of those questions? What do we mean by justice? What are the different understandings of democracy? Because when they walk in the class and you start talking about democracy, everybody is like, yeah, we know what democracy is. You know, No, we don't. We have very different understandings of what democracy is. So let's, let's go after that. Different understandings of what it means to be free. We spend a lot of time in that intro class talking about different understandings of what it means to be free. I am free when what? Oh, there's a lot of different answers to that question. And not just are there different answers, but which answer you choose sends you in very different directions. And in terms of methodology, what are you hoping that maybe majors could take away from your course or how, how should they think about getting more answers or, or getting better at asking the right questions? That's one of the reasons I use the simulations is that it is in applying these ideas into our decision-making in life that we see the connections. And that also emphasizes the oral and written importance of argumentation. So I often tell my students, for example, in political ethics, I say, it's not at all a question of what position you end up holding, but it's a question of how we think about argumentation and how we use it. So argumentation and our ability to communicate that argumentation is, is um, part of what I want them to really get out of the class. And when I say I don't care where you end up, I do not mean literally that any result, any philosophical position is equivalent. I mean, I certainly, we talk about fascism in my classes and I'm not trying to hope my students end up as, as, as fascists. But the idea that my goal is not to lead them to a certain particular uh, theoretical point, but to see the significance of different theoretical points and how they affect the way we live as a political society. And then finally, we ask all our guests if you have any uh, resources that uh, people could look into. Hopefully, if there's something a bit more uh, in-depth that people who have a, some understanding of political science or political theory might be interested in, and then maybe something else that's more accessible to just anybody without background. For those who are educators, I would recommend, if you're interested at all in the simulations, going to the Reacting to the Past website and looking at the portfolio. As I said, there's about 50 of them now, and they're all over the disciplines, all over the place. For others, and thinking back to my years as a journalist, I am a news junkie, but not just wanting to know what's going on, though I do. There are um, very particular resources that I think are helpful. For example, I have been watching and listening to the PBS NewsHour for decades and find it, of course it's not perfect, but I find it extremely valuable in my education 
as a political person. I started listening to it and watching it long before I thought about going into political science. I also um, am a longtime National Public Radio listener. Um, but one of the things, very immediate, just in the last, uh, it's now over a year, but I would highly recommend the podcast The Daily, which comes out about 5 a.m. every morning from the New York Times with Michael Barbero as the as the host. It's about 20 to 25 minutes long, and I, it is one of the best um, one of the best things I've I've seen in terms of thinking about how we live in a political world. It's one main story every day. It's yeah. not a series of things. It's one main story every day for about 20 minutes, and it's really well done. I, I have one more question I want to slide in. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been talking about, you know, you mentioned like having conversations with them, um, you know, uh, people on campus and stuff. And one of the conversations I had with some friends recently was basically this this task of uh, learning about the news and stuff like that. And so, you know, there's so much information out there. And, and even take the average person who's pretty busy, you know, whether they're in school and they're taking four or five classes and they've got events, they've got clubs, they've got all this kind of stuff. Or you take somebody who's working 40 hours a week and they've got, you know, they're making all their meals and maybe they have a dog and maybe they have kids and this kind of thing. So I, I'm very interested in like uh, what, what your perspective is with, with this background on, you know, because what I notice is when you talk, when I talk to somebody like yourself, you go, oh, wow, this is just so complicated. And wow, once we get into the theory and once we get into all this history, oh, the questions just be so, could become so complicated. Like maybe I thought, I thought, um, you know, like in was taking my political philosophy class last fall, I thought some issues were simple, but then I learned how complicated they are. And so it's, it seems to me that that in order to understand the, the news and really know what's going on and to really know what one ought to do, one has to you know, be kind of in some level immersed in this complexity to really know what one to, you know, should be doing or what's even true, right, or what's right. And, and so, but, but then we're all so busy and there's not a lot of time. And so, and so it's almost put me in this position of like, oh, I, that's just like a game I can't play. It's like, oh, that's just a game... In order to play this political news game, this political engagement game, this civic engagement game, oh, one just has to have free time. One just has to be a political theorist. One just has to be somebody whose job is, you know, just already wedded to um, all of these ideas. And and since I'm not in that situation, I just can't play this game. I just have to. I almost have to see the news as just like, you know, it's it's a mix between like entertainment and some kind of information. But I can't take it too seriously because then I'd be kidding myself because I know it's so much more complicated than that. So, so what is, I, what is the average person to kind of do in, in this type of situation? And maybe you disagree with my analysis and that'd be interesting too. Two things. One is that complexity is not inherently a bad thing. So to say that something is complex doesn't mean, oh, therefore it's too complicated for me to get into. That means there are assumptions and beliefs that tend to cloud our understanding, and that's why we need to go at them even more. So complexity means it's multi-layered, and we need to go beneath the surface layer. Secondly, if we are in that position of feeling disconnected because life is real and you have to live it, my God, I've been there. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a lot of my life too. But if we do not become participants 
someone else will do it for us. So politics, political life, does not stop because we're disengaged. It rolls right on with others wielding the, 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 the wheels, steering it along. And so there is a matter of, self, of survival here as well. Becoming engaged in and knowledge about what's going on is to me not an extraneous when I have time, but a core part of what it means to survive as a human being in a political world. And that is difficult, absolutely. But there are little ways to keep talking to people, keep your ears open. Political debate does not have to happen online. It does not have to happen in a classroom. It can happen anywhere and everywhere by taking advantage of any opportunity you have to be thinking about these things. Because again, if we don't do it, someone else will. Political life does not stop because we're withdrawing from participation or unable to actively participate. So you just feel like do what you can with what you got? Yeah, do what you can with what you got. And you look at how political change happens. And a lot of the deepest and most profound political change happens when everyday people step up and become active. Sometimes that's because someone in their family gets hurt or someone they know is at risk and that propels them. That happens every day. And a lot of those things result in deep political change. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again to Dr. Sherry Breen. Adam, what did we learn today? Yeah, today with with you know Sherry's examples of basically you know interactive components to her her classes you know she had the one example of of the role playing in her class and then this other example of her students working with graduate students i i, I just thought that that is such an interesting and, and, and compelling way to really get more deeply involved in what you're learning as a student and, and it really makes me think that if there's some other way to become invested in whatever you're learning that's that's got to be just huge for what you end up do learning because you know sometimes for me as a student and I think other students experience this as well you have a lot going going on and sometimes your motivation kind of just gets spread thin across all sorts of different kind of stuff but if you can have like a new source of motivation right besides the grade be like oh no I just you know I want to make sure that when I go and do this role playing that I do a good job because I think it's fun and I think you know, uh, you know, other people are working hard at it, and I want to make sure you know I can really add something to to the mix, or like like this graduate student stuff. You know, if, if I can really ask them some good questions because they're giving me their time. You know, if, if we can find something in class is another reason to to really be invested in our learning. I, I just think that that's super um, valuable. Yeah, and it, and it relates back to this idea about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, right? So. The grade is going to be extrinsic. Their parents' approval is going to be extrinsic. How can you get them to care about the things in the class just on their own? They do their own research. They they work harder on the paper than they need to. They they write more pages than they need to, et cetera. They have more ideas. They they're you know asking their teacher questions outside of class. And it did sound to me like a great way was to try to have the classroom setting fade into the background, and have the students get into the moment, either talking about the community or the uh, environment that they're talking about, but or also 
making these decisions that have consequences. And so they have to be weighing those consequences and they're forgetting that they're sitting in a desk and looking at a whiteboard or whatever, you know, so, so, so you take them out of the, the element. It's something to think about for me uh, as a, as a philosophy teacher where we just typically do a lot of textual analysis. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, I like the way you put it there. And it just makes me think about the times where, where yeah, a lot of times I'm setting out time to study. I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit it for another 20 minutes. Uh, okay, I'm going to you know set up this plan to get this paper done. All right, I'm going to try to knock out 500 words. But yeah, occasionally I've had these experiences and they're, they're beautiful moments where I kind of like transcend the task. I'm just engaged with the material. I'm just wondering, wow, what does this actually mean? How does this actually work? I'm not wondering, how does this answer the question? How does this get the paper done? And and I think, does that speak to what you're yeah. talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're thinking, I mean, imagine, uh, this is easy if you have kids, right? So you want your kids to read. And if you say, oh, you have to read for 20 minutes, then the, the kid starts saying, is it 10 minutes now? Is it 15 minutes now? But if they actually enjoy what they're reading, then they don't want to stop after 20 minutes, right? And, you know, it's going to be easier or more difficult with certain tasks and with certain students here and there. There's only so much any teacher can do, but it is good to be thinking about, is there more that I can be doing to have them think less about, okay, these are the very narrow and specific things I need to do to get a good grade versus I wonder what the ethical thing to do here. I wonder what the political structure should be here and, you know, the the historical moment. The um, I wonder what this how photosynthesis works or whatever it is that you're studying. Yeah, it's just it's just cool. Yeah, when your when your intellectual interests outgrow what you're doing in class. It's very cool. But then I wonder what, what you thought of this professor, this idea that um, you should kind of play around and that it's it's like good you know, Sherry seemed to be making this point that it's good for your education to like have adventures and to just take classes just to see what they're like. Do you, do you share that opinion? I, I share the idea that you can find, you can be surprised at what you get interested in that when people prejudge, Oh, I'm this kind of thinker. So I won't like that. I think that that's um, oftentimes jumping beyond the evidence that you have you're, you're kind of making a hasty generalization lots of times when you're doing that. I do think that there's a bunch of diversity in goals and personalities of students. So I always hesitate about what, what um, you know, across the board everyone should do. I don't, I'm not trying to say that uh, Dr. Breen intended it that way. But, you know, it doesn't seem to me to be a problem if someone just wants to study X, comes in and studies X and says thanks and moves on, if that's what they were, st- their starting point and they knew what their goal was, I don't, I don't know if um, I would advise them to do other than that. But I do think that if you are prejudging based on too little evidence of what you'd be interested in and that the only way to kind of know for sure is by getting out there and trying it, I do endorse that uh, totally. Yeah, yeah, I like that way of thinking of it because you know she she mentioned this thing that we have certain blinders on. We mm-hmm. have uh, certain kinds of blinders as students um, that kind of uh, affect what we decide to do and, and don't do. So, yeah, from that perspective, maybe a student ought to think, or maybe at least reflect 
for themselves and be like, well, yeah, I do acknowledge that I might have a tendency to prejudge or to, you know, just assume that I already know what's good for me. And so maybe if you acknowledge that you have that tendency and you might just do that, then you're like, well, how can I kind of work around that or hack that? And then you maybe be like, well, I'll just find things that are fun or that are, you know, that are a little wild. Maybe find some other motivation to do something that will also then get you kind of into a subject that you were maybe prejudging before. And that concludes this episode. Links to the references our guest mentioned can be found in the show notes. Before we go here, a big thank you to the Mellon Foundation and the Humanities Division for supporting this podcast. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals participating and do not represent the University of Minnesota Morse or the University of Minnesota System. You can find our podcast on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you want to help out the show, please leave us a review on the iTunes store or share the podcast with others. Thanks for listening. This has been Humanities Engaged. Humanities Engaged.